With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Most weekdays, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Today, though, we'll be looking back at some of the year's most notable passings, the inspired and inspiring figures who died this year. I think 2020 has been a great surprise. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. When I heard about the pandemic, I thought at first that there'd be so many candidates every week that I wouldn't know who to choose. And we'd have this awful business of not knowing who we should prioritise. Of course, there have been so many hundreds of thousands of deaths. On the other hand, deaths of prominent people have not been, I'd say, any more common than usual. One face, though, that was not known to most people, but was extremely important, was that of one of the first doctors to raise the alarm about COVID-19. And this was Li Wenliang, who worked at the Wuhan Central Hospital. He was one of eight doctors who suddenly noticed something strange and put it up as a post on his Weibo account. He said he'd noticed a cluster of strange cases of pneumonia in patients who all seemed to work at the Wuhan food market. And he was concerned about them because it seemed to him they looked like SARS. And the SARS epidemic in China in 2002 to 3 had killed 700 people. And so he posted that he thought that this was SARS. It wasn't, in fact. And an hour later, he corrected his post and said it hadn't been identified. But the damage was done, the post went viral, and he was called in by the police and accused of illegal activities and spreading rumours. And he was made to uh, sign a form saying that he would not pursue his illegal activities any further and to dip his thumb in some red ink and uh, sign with his mark that he was going to obey. And he went back to hospital feeling rather bruised about all this. His speciality, in fact, wasn't pulmonary diseases. It was ophthalmology. He was an eye doctor. And on January the 8th, he treated an 82-year-old woman who had been working, too, at the Wuhan seafood market. A little while after treating her, he began to cough and he realised that he had picked up the strange virus. And fairly soon he had to get himself into hospital and he died less than a month later. China has identified the cause of the mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan city. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. This time the outbreak is in Beijing, and it's triggering concerns of a second wave of infections across China. 
Ironically, it really wasn't until he was in hospital and rather ill that he began to gain world attention. And many, many people came to interview him or interviewed him online, rather, because he was pretty soon in the intensive care unit. And he had an interview with the New York Times in which he still kept his old defiance and said he thought he was right to speak out that truth had to be adhered to, there had to be transparency, the government had to be honest with the people. He was a little bit of an agitator underneath the white coat and I think he felt as he was fighting for his life in the hospital he still had to get his message out and tell everyone that this was a very serious disease and the Chinese government was covering up how serious it was. It's quite difficult to decide who to do in a week. I will usually have half a dozen names. What I do is I read through their stories and it's almost as if a bell literally sounds in my head and I think that is a great story, that's the person I'm going to do. Sometimes, of course, you know, they're, they're famous anyway and they demand to be done and my colleagues would expect me to do them, but it's not always the case. One person Anne wrote about this year hadn't been famous before his death, but afterwards his name was being chanted across America and the world. George Floyd was working three jobs in Minneapolis. He was a truck driver, he was a security guard at a Latino club, and he was working on Tuesdays at the El Nuevo Rodeo Club, which was uh, billed as the hottest Mexican venue in Minneapolis, and drew great crowds of people to three floors of dancing and dining. He was there on Tuesdays because that was often the urban music night, and it was good to have a big genial presence like his on the door, welcoming everybody and not intimidating the crowd. He had come to Minneapolis from Houston several years before, really because he wanted to get a job. He'd meant just to come north, maybe get enough money to um, do a bit more for the women and children in his life still in Houston. And he found that jobs were very plentiful there. The main job George Floyd did in the city was to be a bouncer at the Conga Latin Bistro. And there he was a great favorite with all the regulars. They would love to come up and hug him. Indeed, he would get quite cross with them, apparently, if they didn't give him a hug. And uh, he would eat meals with them, drive them home if they were drunk. He also got a new girlfriend and life was certainly looking up. As a result of that, he thought that he would probably stay in Minnesota. He was torn because Houston was still home and he'd been brought up there. After all, he'd been brought up in the Third Ward, which is almost entirely black. It's a very impoverished part of town. There's a lot of shotgun shacks and pretty rundown public housing. And he seems to have got drawn into crime. He got his first conviction for theft with a firearm in the 1980s. From then on, there were quite a string of arrests for low-level drug offences. And 
he just seemed not to quite be able to get on the straight path. But actually, in 2007, he um, got involved in his worst crime of all when he and five other men broke into a woman's house and he held a gun to her stomach and then looked for drugs and money. It got him five years in prison. When he got out of jail, he made as a resolution that he would start a completely new life. He was a member of a church called Resurrection Houston, and he became very active in there. He organized basketball games and barbecues and Bible studies. So he was doing his best to turn his life around before he went to Minneapolis. And his calls to his friends then were full of hopes for the future. But by this spring, things had got a lot cloudier. The pandemic struck him rather hard because both the restaurants where he was working were closed down, obviously, because of the virus. Things were not yet desperate, but uh, then they seemed to take a difficult turn and he found himself in trouble with the police again. And that was on the fatal night, the night of the 25th of May. On that evening, he went with two acquaintances to Cup Foods to buy cigarettes. And there, one of them tried to pay with a $20 bill, which the store clerk thought looked counterfeit. And they went out of the store. And then George Floyd came back in with the same $20 bill. And we still don't know. No one seems to know whether it was actually counterfeit, but... The counter clerk called 911 and the squad cars all turned up. And they got a hold of George Floyd, who'd actually gone out of the store at that stage. And they tried to handcuff him at first. He resisted arrest. They managed to get the cuffs on him and then he became very calm and quiet. They tried to hustle him into the squad car. He said he was claustrophobic, didn't want to get in there. And uh, at that point, he was shoved to the ground and um, an officer sat on his neck, pressed on his neck for almost nine minutes. And meanwhile, he was crying out for his mother and crying out that he couldn't breathe and that his neck hurt, his stomach hurt. But the officer showed no compassion, whatever until he was quite unconscious, until he was quite limp. In fact, he was limp three minutes before the officer got up. And the terrible irony in this whole story is that the officer who did this outrageous and horrible thing, Derek Chauvin, had been working with him, whether he knew it or not, at the El Nuevo Rodeo on Tuesday nights. choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. 
At the start of the 1960s, America began a dramatic expansion of its space program. It would require the finest minds solving the thorniest problems in physics, computing, and engineering. Among them was Katherine Johnson. She had joined the outfit at NASA because exceptionally they were taking on black mathematicians. But normally it was extremely difficult to get into professional work, and so she was a rarity. She'd only been two weeks in the job in the all-male flight research unit when an engineer came up to her with a sheaf of papers and asked her to check his calculations. And she realized that there was an error involving a square root. Increasingly, she was given all the equations and calculations that the men had to make, check them over. She was still working, though, in an extremely segregated and misogynistic environment. It was segregated because she couldn't eat in the cafe. And then, increasingly, the flight engineers were having closed-door meetings where they were discussing the aeronautics of spacecraft. And she was not allowed in there, and she asked why. They said, the girls don't usually go. She said, why not? Is there a law against it? They said no, and they had to let her in. So she became the first woman who attended those meetings. Her greatest achievements at NASA were all to do with the early days of America's journeys into space. The first flight she helped a good deal with was Alan Shepard's, which was the first American manned flight. This is Freedom 7. The fuel is go 1.2G. Cabin at 14 PSI. Oxygen is go. She made sure not only that the launch window was in the right place, but also that he could get back safely to Earth because that was always the main problem. Once the flights became manned, you had to get your people back safely. The next one was John Glenn. This was in 1962. He was the first American to orbit the Earth. Roger, Cape is go and I am go. Our capsule is in good shape. All systems are go. And he was extremely worried before his flight because at that time they had just brought in electronic computers to NASA. It was this electronic computer that was supposed to be calculating all the trajectories of his spacecraft to and from and around the Earth. He didn't trust it. And he said to the people at NASA, unless the girl checks it, and this was Katherine Johnson, I won't go. Main chute is on green. Chute is out in reef condition at 10,800 feet in. Beautiful chute. Chute looks good. On O2 emergency and the chute looks very good. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. 
Every year, thousands of tourists visit the El Rosario Butterfly Sanctuary in Mexico. But the sanctuary and its staff have long been under threat. The migration of monarch butterflies is one of the great wonders of the natural world. They fly 4,500 kilometers from eastern Canada right down to Mexico. And they do this every year. They start in late August and make their way down to arrive in Mexico at the very beginning of November. There are millions of these butterflies, and the color is bright orange, tending to yellow. Suddenly, there they are coming in clouds over the western part of Mexico. The man who probably welcomed them most eagerly to a little place called El Rosario in the middle of Michoacán was Homero Gómez. He was the manager of the El Rosario Butterfly Sanctuary, and he would watch for these butterflies for days before. He was an intrepid tweeter, so he would send out to all his followers pictures of him, pictures of the sky and the trees, film of it, just waiting for that first little wing to come flickering across. Buenas tardes, amigas, amigos. Los saludos desde el Santuario del Rosario, el más grande del mundo. Hoy en día maravilloso, después de muchos días que... And then picture after picture would come and film after film of him standing in forest clearings with his arms out, welcoming the butterflies, and they would land on him, they'd land on his head and his nose and his shoulders. And flock to the trees, so many of them that the branches were actually weighed down and the leaves would look orange with them. For some time, he'd been receiving death threats. There had been various tense standoffs with the illegal loggers, who, despite the fact that logging had been banned in the sanctuary for some time by the national government, still managed to come in. It was still very lucrative to take the trees out. There are some quite valuable hardwoods that grow in among the, the special pine trees that the monarch butterflies love. So these were the new enemies. They were armed. He had to try and keep a constant watch on them, so he organized patrols keeping a watch out for intruders. So there was not a great deal of surprise when he went missing. His body was found floating in a sort of farm reservoir. And it seemed at first that it was just a death by drowning, and that was what the authorities said, but a better autopsy revealed that he'd had a blow to the head. One of the things that most drew me to write this obituary was the contrast between the fragility and beauty of the butterflies, which had so attracted Homero Gomez, and the apparent horror and violence of the way he died. Written this year, a woman died after 80 years of embodying the national spirit. Vera Lynn used to uh, go and choose her music in the shops in Denmark Street, which is where all the music dealers and companies are. The interesting thing about her is that she couldn't read music, so when she picked up a score and looked at it, 
All she judged it by were the words. She would see if the lyrics moved her, and if she felt they were sentimental enough, then that was a song for her. And she found some good ones. White Cliffs of Dover, We'll Meet Again, There'll Always Be an England. There'll always be an England While there's a country lane She found she could move people to tears and she became extremely famous during the Second World War with her programme called Sincerely Yours on the BBC. Dear boys, I've been working in the West End all this week and using the tubes and buses a lot. I realised how well some of the girls are doing your job while you're away. And when she sang, thousands of people tuned in and listened to her and were moved by her. And she became a huge radio celebrity. It was really said that she won the war single-handed all by herself. The post-war years were quite difficult in Britain. We had won the war, but the country was tired, weary, and uh, the memories of the war and the spirit it had kindled were extremely important, and people felt they could rekindle a feeling of national pride and purpose by talking about the war again. So, of course, that meant keeping Vera's songs very much to the forefront, and she was aware of that too and felt that she had to keep the national morale going, even if the country wasn't at war. They'll never forget that period. And uh, the songs seem to be somehow part of it. And uh, if it still means that much to them, and they're entertained by them, who am I to stop singing them? And she went on singing them as long as her voice would let her. And she came to embody Britain and especially Britain during the COVID crisis. It seemed particularly poignant that she died at the ripe old age of 103, just as we were coming out of lockdown in a year where her voice had again been the voice of comfort and uplift for a whole population as it was in the war. on Vera Lin, who died this year. We also heard about the lives of Lee Wenliang, George Floyd, Catherine Johnson, and Omero Gomez. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We will be taking a couple of hard-won days off, so happy holidays and see you back here on Monday. I met a guy recently who told me that he spends roughly $250,000 a month. I talked to another person recently who made $50 million at the age of 30. What do you do with that money? How do you spend it? How do you not spend it? What do you invest in? How does it change your relationship with other people? If you meet a rich person, these are questions everyone wants to know, but you're too embarrassed to ask. Well, guess what? 
I'm not too embarrassed. That's the whole premise of MoneyWise. We talk to real people who have made a significant amount of money, and we ask them all about their finances, and they're incredibly transparent about it. My name's Sam Parr, and the podcast is called MoneyWise. That's one word, Money Wise. It's by my company, Hampton. You can find MoneyWise wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out.